Welcome to This Human Business, a podcast about the growing movement to restore balance to commerce, celebrating those aspects of our work that can't be performed by any machine. Digital technology is great at recording facts, but it's just plain terrible at performing acts of fiction. Human beings have evolved to be cultural animals, not just computational problem solvers. That means that although we'll engineer our way out of practical challenges, the motivations that lead us to confront those challenges come from the way that we imagine the world to be. This podcast is built around a story of sorts. It's the tragic story of how, in the pursuit of efficiency, the world of business efficiently cut themselves off from the sources of enchantment that drive commerce in the first place. Just as it seemed to be too late, however, a movement of professionals dedicated to the restoration of human value in business assembled to turn the tide. Is this just a fairy tale? If it is, maybe this is just the fairy tale we need. This week, I'll be talking with business experts about the power of story. I spoke to Jonah Sachs about this recently. Jonah, the author of the book Winning the Story Wars, argues that marketers have taken over the role of generating mythology in our society giving us our sense of collective identity when they're doing their job right. Jonah encourages us to delve deep in search of business storylines, down into the bedrock where our awareness meets our subconscious mind. It's at this boundary that we find the most fruitful ideas, the most powerful. They're powerful not in spite of their fictional status, but because of it. It's along this boundary that Christian Aloma finds his work. We bumped into Christian briefly in the last episode, but let's learn a little bit more about him now. My name is Christian Aloma. I'm the founder and CEO of a marketing design firm, or what I call narrative design firm, called Threadline. Um, And I'm... uh, I've been in marketing for my entire career in some aspect or capacity, Um, and it was when I actually started getting my graduate degree in psychology where I started to see the greater role and importance of narrative. And in doing that and and understanding narrative and and its role at a cognitive level uh, and studying the role of narrative at a cognitive level in regards to how we define ourselves, how we manage and manufacture and manicure our identities, I started to realize how important or how how everything we engage with gets integrated or not into those narratives. And so now what I'm looking at, what I'm studying most closely and what I'm trying to apply to the way business is done is how can we take that understanding? How can we, knowing that consumers are narrative machines, right? That they are meaning-making machines. How can we run businesses or design products and design services that play a role in that narrative, in their narrative, that help them make meaning out of the world, that help, you know, help them reframe some concept or idea about who they are because of either 
what that product or that service does for them um, or what it just simply means to own that thing. Christian's company, Threadline, uses the narrative structure of story to help businesses align their practical efforts with the underlying meaning that makes it relevant to people's lives. There is no mathematical formula for meaning, of course. So how can it be applied in business? The conventional approach to business frequently lectures us that if something can't be measured, it can't be managed. The storyteller asserts something quite different, letting us know that what we're about to hear is untrue and yet essentially important. It's a playful act that taunts our obsession with data, breaking the clear delineation between what is valuable and what's not. In reaction to the play of stories, some people in business lash back in defense, arguing that stories are irrelevant or, as designer Stefan Sagmeister said recently in a video called You Are Not a Storyteller, that most people can't be storytellers because if their work were to tell a story, it would be shit. I want to make it plain that the audio you are about to hear of Stefan Sagmeister is not from an interview that I did with him. Rather, this was recorded in July of 2014 for an FITC Toronto conference. Okay. Mm. Hi, my name is Stefan Sagmeister. I am a Austrian graphic designer who lives and works in New York City. Well, I'm actually quite um, critical of the storytelling thing. I think that the, all the storytellers are not storytellers. Like recently, I read an interview with somebody who designs roller coasters, and he referred to himself as a storyteller. No, f***head, you are not a storyteller. You're a roller coaster designer, and that's fantastic. And more power to you. But why would you want to be a storyteller if you design roller coasters, or if you are storytelling? Then the story that you tell is, it's like this little itsy bitsy little thing. Yes, you go through the space, and yes, you see other spaceships, and yes, that's your story. That's a shit story. That's boring. The more power to you comment here is completely undermined when Sagmeister tells people who aspire to tell stories through their work that they're just boring people doing calling them Okay, I want to pause the podcast here right now because you'll notice that I used some beeps to go over what uh, Stefan Sagmeister was saying. I think you have a pretty good idea of what that is. Uh, and I feel a little bit old fashioned about this, but I just don't think that that kind of language is called for. It, you understand what it is. Um, he used a word that begins with F and he talked about what male cattle do in a field after they've had a great big lunch. But you know, he, he used this to describe somebody who's just trying to tell a story for goodness sake, somebody who's trying to elevate their work. Um, I think that that's really kind of sad. If you want to see the language that he used, go ahead and look at the transcript for this podcast, which is available at thishumanbusiness.com. Thank you for your patience with this explanation. I asked Christian Aloma what he thought about Sagmeister's comments, and here's the conversation that followed. 
So the first thing that comes to mind is, I think, an idea that I've been grappling with since I started Threadline, which is what we mean when we say story and how often we use it. And I think I think a lot gets packed into the word story when we talk about it nowadays um, that doesn't belong there. Um, and it reminds me of actually, I think, the very same issue I have with the word brand and I, there was a, a, a book called, uh, I think it was Thinking on Brands or something like that. And Malcolm Gladwell was interviewed in it. And, um, and he says he has the issue with the word brand is the same issue he has with the word Africa, where there's so many different distinct cultures and countries within Africa, but it all gets just packaged into one word because that's the word we've given it. And that's what we're, we're just not willing to kind of go beyond that. Stephen, or is it Stefan? I'm not positive. Um, I didn't catch the pronunciation, but um, he, I think he's criticizing the use of the word story. I disagree that a roller coaster engineer can't feel like, quote unquote, a storyteller or isn't a storyteller. Um, but because I think it's just the wrong word. I do think that storytelling engineer can create a narrative experience that you know our storytelling engineer the roller coaster engineer can create a narrative experience where someone feels you know a, a rise in tension and and this sort of you know kind of journey that they go through um and and this like experience that they almost feel as though they're no longer in sort of the real world but they're in this setting and scenario that this person has created where they almost feel as though they are in fact traveling to mars or they are, in fact, on a spaceship and going through the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of being on a spaceship, mind you, in perhaps 90 seconds. But they are, for a moment, living the experience of being on that spaceship. Um, and that's where I think, you know, that that roller coaster engineer is, uh, and the term that I use to describe it, a narrative designer. He has created a narrative for someone to experience, and they are experiencing it with the dressing of a roller coaster. Um, now I do think, you know, I, there's, I listen to music in the background, um, and there's a song that keeps coming on, uh, called the conversation. It's instrumental. And every time I hear it, I think they have created this conversation with nothing but musical notes. You know, there's a back and a forth and there's a tension and there's this, this narrative that this, these, this composer has created that you could not truly call a story. You can't go watch it. You can't, you know, identify, you know, that there's, uh, you know, watch it on screen or read it in a book, but you experience it as music. And are they storytellers? I don't think so. Not in the traditional format of storytelling, but they are narrative designers using music as, as the dressing on that narrative. And my mother used to tell me when we told her as children, we were bored. I wish I were you. Um, and because she felt as though she were never bored, she had so many things to do and how, what a wonderful thing it would be to be bored. But, um, I do think I agree with that sense. Boring is in the eye of the beholder or in this sense where I think, where I do think it's insulting is he suggests. And again, I'm going to probably try to give him more benefit of the doubt, uh, than maybe you expected I would. Right. But I expect, like, I, I think he's trying to suggest it's okay to be small. And there's a part of that that I'm, I agree with in that 
you know, you don't have to be a superhero. And this is where it's going to tie to, I think, your idea, which is I don't you don't have to be a superhero to be something meaningful. You can be small and being meaningful, but the way he's describing it and the way he's talking about it, I think he is stripping meaning out of it. He is stripping that sense of meaning making for both the act of doing the thing and the meaning making that that person might be providing to others uh, or giving them the opportunity to make meaning from. And that is where I do think that there's a lot of, I, I think there's an issue there because you can do something that on a scale of its impact in the world, for example, might seem rather small or minuscule, uh, but is still extremely meaningful. And I think it's meaningful to the individual doing it. And it's oftentimes meaningful to the individuals, perhaps small population of individuals that are impacted by it. And that's where I think it's wrong to take that value away, that if an individual you know, if this this roller coaster designer sees himself as a storyteller, yes, perhaps he's using the semantics wrong, depending on, and it's not even an agreed upon semantics, truly, but the idea is he's finding more meaning in his job than simply assembling tracks and putting a cart on top of them. He's finding something more to it than that, which I think is your point. Um, and that is, I think that's, that's the shortcut term we use, which is storytelling, Yes, you'll hear some people like Stefan Sagmeister sneer at the idea of storytelling in business. They'll say it's just a trend, a fad. Take a look at the alternatives to story that we've been given, though, and you'll see they're pretty dreadful. They're a dull and dreary return to scientific management that's devoid of imagination. It's true that attention to the framework of story is relatively new in business, but that's because conventional business culture has been so dead set against the idea that commerce could have a meaning that's higher than making money. This is what story ultimately boils down to. Meaning. The idea that our activities aren't just tasks to be labored through, but that they're aiming in an important direction. Story tells us that what we're doing is about something. If we pursue a storytelling strategy in our business just because it's the latest fad, we're missing the whole point of effective storytelling. Stories that work aren't just about people who do things. They're about people who struggle for something that matters. Without this larger meaning, story is empty. It's about an absolutely fundamental shift in the way that we conceptualize organizations and what they should be doing and how they should create value and what that value should contribute to in a larger scheme of humanity rather than let's just apply anthropology because philosophers have cool ideas you know it's <laughs> because there's this like fundamental way in which corporations like trivialize things and also when something becomes a trend, it gets emptified very quickly. So essentially you are like, you're shrinking your own leverage space rapidly with every new word, because like the market jumps at everything and then it stops being cool and stops being the thing, but it's still a thing. Like, <laughs> 
whether or not you talk about it, it's still absolutely important. So if, if I just hope that meaning doesn't become a buzzword, because without meaning, if, if we amplify meaning, then what else are we supposed to do? Like that is, that is like the, 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 the meaning of life is meaning. That's how we, we operate. That's how we navigate the world. And that's how we structure our thoughts and the kind of stories that we create, build our identities and create culture. So if meaning becomes buzzword, such as purpose has become, and that, that is now quickly becoming rather out of date. And so we must quickly find something else to to concentrate on. But uh, without meaning, we, we cannot do anything. You know, businesses cannot do anything. These words come from semiotician and strategic consultant Martina Olbertova. Let's hear a little bit about her professional story the creation of Meaning.Global. Meaning Global is a, a sort of new breed of a, of a strategic consultancy that I created last year. And with the, with the idea that it would be a new kind of strategy that's powered uh, entirely by meaning. It's something like a sociology of media almost, basically looking at uh, the communication and media production in a larger context of culture and society. So it it, um, it derives inspiration from things like semiotics and linguistics and cultural anthropology um, and history of media and, and theory of mass communication and looking at all the different theories of, of, of human communication throughout uh, throughout the centuries. With this whole journey, what I ultimately realized is that it's all very nice, but there's one absolutely fundamental thing missing in all of this, wherever you look, whether it's marketing, whether it's research, whether it's advertising, strategy, brands, consulting, and that one thing is meaning. So I create a consultancy that just focuses purely on meaning and making um, brands and organizations more meaningful uh, in order to create and encapsulate value from the inside out. Because if you don't have anything to say, no matter how nicely designed your logo is, how beautifully devised the campaign is, you're ultimately still have nothing to say. So, <laughs> so, um, so you need to make sure that the, the meaning is there and then you can communicate. But without it, um, no matter how much you spend on advertising and, and communication and design, it's not going to have the impact that you're ultimately looking for. The first thing that you need to do is to to assess the scope of the situation properly, to really understand the cultural context and what the brand is saying and like how how the meaning basically lives in the world. So a lot of brands make the mistake that they they basically create a strategy and that strategy is good, but only in theory because we don't live in a world of vacuum, right? So in a vacuum, the, the campaign <laughs> might actually be very successful. But once the brand um, actually meets the real world, there are many different ways in which the, the cultural context and the brand can clash that neither the agency nor the client actually have the power to foresee. So that's why you call people like semioticians or cultural strategists or cultural anthropologists to understand those potentially flammable ideas. Flammable ideas, 
it doesn't get more relevant than that. Fire alone isn't enough, though. An open flame burns without meaning. Story is an engine of meaning that contains ignition, giving structure to our burning needs, propelling us forward in the direction of our intended destination. Careful design of the story engine is essential, though. Constructed without attention to detail, an engine becomes a bomb that can blow a business to smithereens. Story isn't just about telling any old tale. It's much more than a trick for getting people's attention. To tell a story, you have to understand who you are, and even more importantly, where your audience is coming from. A story cannot be told outside the cultural context in which a business is embedded. When you want to explore cultural relevance of different grant narratives or stories or even innovations, and if they tap into the zeitgeist or the sort of mood of the now, um, semiotics is absolutely, in my perspective, the best way how to approach such a research. So essentially, as semioticians, we look at three three most fundamental contexts of a brand. So the first one is actually the, 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 the brand itself. And historically, the communication uh, that is that it created. So we would look at the dominant brand codes. We would look at the different trends in the, the in the settings and the storytelling. We would look at the tonality and the tone of voice. We would look at what kind of people are there, what what they saying, how they saying it, what they sort of embody on a symbolic uh, or ideological level, and what those stories are sort of uh, signaling about the larger context of the of the culture and the society as we see it and as we live in it. And then we would look at the, the category. Then we would look at, in a category, we would look at the entire landscape of all the other banking brands and maybe even the, the kind of uh, narratives and the linguistics um, that go hand in hand. Uh, and then we will look at the third order, basically, which is the culture, all the more of an ideological landscape. The work of storytellers in business is the work of taking industrially produced objects designed by committee in offices far, far away from the people who will consume them and finding ways to connect those objects to the intensely emotional journeys of real human beings. The objects and the companies who produce them won't often be major characters in the human stories in which they are embedded, but that doesn't mean that their role is insignificant, or as Stefan Sagmeister would say, boring. Boring is not an objective quality of an object in the world. Boredom is a state of mind that reflects a lack of imagination, a subtle, perceptive, and appreciative understanding can grasp big ideas in small things. That's the kind of mindset that Bhavik Joshi brings to his work, connecting ancient stories with contemporary commercial objects. Let's meet Bhavik. I am a brand builder. That's essentially what I am, what I like to call myself maybe 
uh, even aspirationally want to be that essentially. So, uh, in other words, uh, designation-wise, right now at LPK, I'm a strategy director. Um, the role that a strategy director takes could be varied, and it's also kind of left up to your devices and strengths and the kind of material and depth that you want to tap into to build that strategy. So I tend to lean into storytelling, into mythology, um, into trying to understand uh, the various levels of the psyche, not just the conscious and rational, but also the subconscious and the unconscious um, through the role of dreams and Jungian archetypes, and then try and manifest that into some kind of a narrative that makes sense into the birth and development of a brand. So that's what I like to do. That's what I would love to do more of. Now, of course, not all projects that I that come across my table allow me to do that. But because this is my interest and has been my interest for a long time, I try to infuse at least some of it, even in the projects that don't necessarily allow me to do a lot of this with you know time and budget constraints or whatever. So that's where I'm at right now. And what... Um, led to the creation of this or the creation of me rather was I think ever since so I'm from India uh, that's where I was born and I was brought up and lived there for most of my life until I was 28 to, till I moved to the to the United States and I was surrounded by all of that I was surrounded by mythology surrounded by some great fiction writing some poetry uh, philosophical points of views not not only Western, in fact, very less Western, but also Eastern. And I think that kind of um, planted the seeds of being curious about the human condition and understanding uh, how the human experience can be bettered when they uh, kind of put their faith in containers of meaning. Now, those containers of meanings could be inst religious institutions like church and faith, etc. cetera, uh, but it could also be something... Uh, that's slightly more prevalent uh, of the commercial nature, which is brands. So um, I think that's where I started to understand and want to build brands that had more of a depth and dimension to them that kind of activated a larger self-discovery within a human being instead of just being transactional that was limited just to the product interaction. Um, and I think that's where my aspiration to become a brand builder came into being. The idea that a commercial brand could be just as much a container of meaning as a religious institution will strike some people as blasphemous. If that's so, then maybe we should engage in blasphemy. The mythologies of ancient religious traditions bring us fascinating stories, but they're from long ago. We can and should seek metaphors for our current challenges in those mythologies, but we also need to recognize the sacred quests that are unique to our own times. You know, growing up, we used to listen to the Ramayana, which is a massive, a, a really influential epic in, in India and I would say many parts of the Eastern world as well. And uh, there is a character, a very important character, which could be linked to, um, you know, in the Joseph Campbell's monomyth or the hero's journey, there is always those magical friends who kind of help you along the way. And in, in that sense, Ramayana has a magical friend called Hanuman, 
uh, who is a um, he's he's a worshipper of the Lord Ram, but also his helper and and kind of gives him the power and the strength and the magic he needs to kind of go and um, you know fulfill his destiny. So um, I always, I mean, I was always, I think, subconsciously attracted to that character, and I think I felt like it's kind of like you know the role of Scottie Pippen to Michael Jordan in a way. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, that, this person is really, this character, this, this archetype is really, really important in the, in the movement of the narrative arc of the epic, but also in the evolution of Lord Ram himself. And, and I think, I, I don't know if I would have ever made that link consciously or, or rationally, but I think somewhere I kind of felt like those kind of wings per se, because Hanuman can fly, um, those kind of wings are what a brand should be for the evolution of the human being through their life. So I think subconsciously maybe that was what was playing in my mind when I thought about that. How is Hanuman like Scotty Pippen? It's a crazy question, but the best stories have their origins in odd comparisons, in ideas that don't seem to fit at first but then become appropriate through the elevation of the characters involved. Bavik's point, I think, is that there are eternal patterns in the struggle for meaning that transcend the particularities of any specific spot in time and space. I feel like all of us, this is, this is my, maybe my fifth perception on the brand as an archetype, right? I feel like all the consumers are actually the heroes who are on their respective heroes journeys who are on their respective quests and somewhere along that path they meet or interact with a brand or different brands in different capacities each of which fulfills a different role so there might be guidance but there might also be a challenge there might also be um uh, seduction, there might also be uh, some healing, there might also be some holding of opposites in order to kind of realize the transition from one realm to the other, one threshold to the other. Um, and I think all of those roles, um, symbolically, metaphorically, need to be embodied by the brand uh, and done in a way that resonates with, with the consumer as people. Uh, for them to find a deeper meaning that goes beyond just the product purchase interaction. Mm -hmm. um, if, if I may give you one of my examples, I also taught branding at the University of Cincinnati for two years, and I would use this um, example quite a bit. So um, Patagonia as a brand, and I know it's easy to use Patagonia and Apple as an example, but it happens to be one of my favorite brands who's maybe able to activate some of these deeper meanings in people. And one example of that is it stands for sustainability. It makes gear that helps you be outside in a responsible manner, uh, making sure that your footprint is as small as possible, that you're very conscious and very aware of the impact that you're leaving on the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I have seen, uh, in fact, uh, quite, uh, you know, quite popularly so, um, a lot of people wearing Patagonia gear who have probably never set foot on a hillside ever in their life, 
right? They're probably in a coffee shop writing a script, you know, writing their stand-up comedy or whatever it is, but they're wearing Patagonia. And one of the reasons why they're doing that, and there could be several reasons why they're doing that, but one of the reasons is that the meaning that is encapsulated in Patagonia goes beyond the interaction with the product. It goes beyond the having of a jacket or being outside. In fact, there could be many hikers like me who, who, who've been outside, who've not owned uh, more than one gear from Patagonia, but the experiences that we have while we're outside or the things that we think about when we come across, let's say, uh, a yak or a coyote or something, kind of links us back to some fine thread that came from the roots of Patagonia as a container of meaning. So even though I'm not in a situation where I'm purchasing the brand or interacting with the brand, don't have the brand on me, near me, anywhere, but the meaning of the brand surrounds me in the environment that the brand probably wishes for it to surround me. Bavik gets to an important idea for storytelling in business. By helping us to think metaphorically, stories build ideas that transcend the merely functional benefits of a product and the literal differences between brands. The physical differences between most brands, in truth, are usually not very significant. But the stories that develop around brands connect with our larger aspirations and build experiences that transcend the act of consumption itself. The stories that have the power to build a business aren't about a jobs-to-be-done kind of problem-solving. A consultant I met a few months ago explained how the most effective stories connect to a larger purpose in which a business can participate even though the purpose doesn't center on its own brand. I'm David Altschul. I'm the co-founder of Character. It's a consulting group based in Portland uh, that is built on the idea of using story as a strategic tool. My partner and I spun it out from an animation studio that I was running, uh, at, at which he was a uh, commercial director, uh, in the uh, summer of 2000. We had done a lot of character work, which is why we adapted the name. Uh, starting back in the 80s when we produced all the California Raisins and then in the 90s when we produced all the animated M&Ms. And as a result of that work, uh, advertising agencies came to us for help developing characters for ad campaigns. What I realized was that when we applied our creative talents to our work in entertainment, when we were developing characters for feature films or TV shows, we had a great time, we were very successful, we knew what we were doing. When we tried to apply those same talents to our work in advertising, it was uh, almost always a pain in the ass. And I didn't understand why that seemed necessarily to be true. The, uh, the breakthrough came one day when my executive creative director came out of a meeting with an advertising uh, agency team and a brand team and he looked terrible. I, I asked him what was wrong, and he said, oh, I just wasted half a day in another 
12 people sitting around a table arguing about the size of the nose meeting. And now, you know, probably 25 years later, uh, we still talk about size of the nose meetings and size of the nose problems to describe what happens when an otherwise accomplished, talented, successful group of people gets gridlocked because they're trying to solve a tactical problem. They're trying to solve a, a problem at a tactical level and they don't really have an understanding of the story. They're trying to solve a tactical or executional problem and, and they don't understand the strategy. And in, in the case of developing a character for advertising, what was really missing was story. What was missing from that size of the nose meeting was story. And I don't mean the backstory. I don't mean, you know, there's a little leprechaun and he comes from a magical parallel universe where amazingly marshmallow bits are nutritious. I, I mean, uh, you know, what is this story about? What does this brand exist in the world to do besides making money for its shareholders? And uh, we began to understand that our clients didn't have an appreciation of story. The kind of story that David is talking about here isn't just a tactical tool to get people to pay attention while messages about competitive advantages are slipped into the message, as we see happening in the humorous but disconnected advertisements for insurance brands like Geico and Progressive. He's talking about stories with big ideas, because those big ideas address the burning questions that concern people the most. These stories are strategic. The audience for these stories isn't just consumers. The narratives used in marketing are stories that businesses tell to themselves. They're stories about what business is and about what business really wants. There are a couple of large kind of umbrella metaphors within which business takes place. I think of the principal three as war, science, and story. Both classical brand management and the management of a modern commercial enterprise of any kind tends to be built around the first two. Modern brand management is really about war and science. The war metaphor is a tool set that you use to operate in a competitive landscape. And the science metaphor are the tools that you use to operate analytically, to understand uh, you know, the metrics that are necessary in order to organize and control and manage a, a large business with a large number of employees and a vast number of customers. And those are very legitimate. I mean, you, you need to understand how to operate relative to your competition in a, in a uh, market environment and you need to understand how to figure out the things to measure, to measure them, and to analyze the data that you get uh, in order to operate a business of any size. So those are necessary, but neither the analytical tools nor the competitive tools get you to a relationship. It's a very clunky way to get to relationship. And the brand is nothing except a relationship between you know, the consumer and the uh, enterprise. It's a fictional relationship, I understand, but, but, it's, uh, but a brand is a useful fiction, and uh, the member of the audience, you know, if, the, if you're relating to a brand and the story feels true, then just as a member of an audience 
watching a drama, you suspend your disbelief and you feel connected uh, to the brand in spite of your awareness that it's kind of a fiction. So that's why I think story is important, uh, particularly for the relationship piece. Unlike the war metaphor, which divides people, and the science metaphor, which objectifies them, the metaphor of business as story connects people into communities of common purpose. While competition and analytical precision lead people to spend their money in whatever way brings them maximum advantage in the moment, community fosters the kind of loyalty that endures inconvenience. Stories, by helping to define communities that we can belong to, enable us to get beyond the triviality of habit, encouraging us to stand firm even when the going gets tough. When a business decides to tell stories instead of just repeating facts and gathering data, it's stretching the truth in a good way. Here's the thing. Stories aren't just tools that marketers use to trick people. They stretch the truth to make the truth better than it has been. They ennoble the act of consumption and marketing alike. What if we were to stick with the facts about business? Let me tell you, it wouldn't look pretty. The facts are that businesses take lots of money and concentrate it in the hands of a few greedy people at the expense of everyone else. The facts are that businesses pollute the world. The facts are that despite the Silicon Valley hype, something like 95% of tech startups fail miserably, dragging people down with them when they go. The facts are that Bitcoin has the distribution structure of an oligarchy and is used to prop up the most heinous crimes. The fact is that business helped elect Donald Trump. Had enough? We could go on like this for a long time. But the thing I want you to remember is that facts don't tell the story. To tell a story is to imagine that things could be better. This whole podcast series tries to tell the story that business doesn't have to be an ugly, abusive thing. We can imagine that business can become a reflection of the best that humanity has to offer. And by imagining that, we can start the work of making our story real. David Altschul says it well, stories connect us. Story is a sequence of events that communicates meaning. And the storyteller and the audience are connected by a common effort to find meaning in things. Story is the way the human brain has evolved to deal with issues of great complexity. A storyteller is nothing if not connected to his or her audience. So that relationship piece is integral to story. If you're telling a story effectively, you are connected to your audience. And if that story rings true, then members of your audience will identify with the protagonist of your story and suspend their disbelief, understanding that it may perfectly well be fictional, but that it's the truth of the story that they ultimately connect to, the sense of meaning. If it, if it resonates, if, if it's built on a belief that they share, then you've made a connection. David advises us to craft stories that ring true. 
But as systems of data analytics have come to dominate corporate decision-making, what rings true is being replaced by what can be proven to be factually correct. Driven by the old adage that we can't manage what we can't measure, businesses have become data-driven to a fault, deciding to measure absolutely everything that they can to the point that they lose the ability to discern the measurements that matter from those metrics that are merely simple to produce. Not everybody in business is ready to think in this way, but those who are will gain the advantage of relevance. The movement to restore human business doesn't need to appeal to everyone, David explains, in order to begin making a significant impact. The people in business who find their way to us or who find themselves drawn to uh, this approach don't have to change who they are. They come to us because they already have an appetite for doing business in a way that seems both more meaningful to them and more meaningful to the people they work with and the people that they do business with. And all of that is a function of story, whether they have previously articulated it that way or not. So people who are deeply dedicated to the science metaphor would love to believe that if they could just get the data right, they would never need to deal with storytelling or creative agency people again. Uh, by and large, we're not working for them because they're, you know, they're not drawn to what we do. And people who are dedicated to the war metaphor, who really believe that it's, you know, everybody's, every business is like a racing car and they're just going to drive faster and more skillfully and more aggressively than the next guy and that's how they're going to win. Uh, they may not have an appetite for this either, but by and large, the people who have been in business the longest, who are the wisest, who have the most perspective, understand whether they understand what's missing or not. They understand that something is missing if the only tools you've got are the analytical tools and the competitive tools. So, storytelling is effective in business because it's centered around the project of defining a fundamental vision of the world that consistently determines all the details of how we should behave. Stories tell us about who we are and how we can rediscover our purpose when we get off track. The question remains, how do businesses actually accomplish this? How do they get the material out of which we build the stories from which brands are born. Doug Grant, the founder of Inqui Research, explains how thick, emotionally vulnerable, human-to-human -human contact enables elements of a business story to emerge. Sometimes I feel like I'm there with them when you kind of step into their shoes and you you, know, you, you hear these stories. And, and some of them are quite, you know, they're quite... Um, Sometimes they're private. Sometimes they're, um, you know, it's when they have these moments of vulnerability. And I think for some people, when you get the stories that are, you know, most meaningful, um, when they're really, you know, when they really get to something interesting, I think it's um, a relief in some ways. I think some something, when these people are going through it, I think they might even have a little bit of reflection on their self or 
a little bit of self-discovery. Step into people's shoes, as Doug suggests, and you'll quickly realize that Stefan Sagmeister got it backwards. Storytellers aren't some elite class of artists with an exclusive right to tell enchanting stories while the rest of us are cursed with being boring. Human beings are all born storytellers. We just need to listen to what they're saying and the story will emerge. The trick is that when a story is as big and complex as a business can get, no single individual has the whole story. Not the CEO, not the product manager, not even a favorite customer. To get the whole story, a business needs a purposeful method for gathering the bits and pieces of the narrative that are already being told. This isn't a task that data mining, survey research, or superficial qualitative methods such as focus groups can perform. In the next episode of This Human Business, we'll explore the alternative to the machine-directed systems of data mining that gather more facts than we could ever know how to use. Next week, we will consider the potential for new, uniquely human forms of business research. Come back then. It's a human thing, simple gratitude, that compels me to thank the artist Maidan for the song Underwater from the album For Creators, which is the music that you heard at the beginning of the podcast and which you're listening to now once again. I'm also extremely grateful to all the thinkers and business leaders who agreed to be interviewed for this podcast. I encourage you to seek them out online to find out what other marvelous things they've been up to.